This podcast was made on Zencaster. My guest today is Dr. Will Sue. Will is a psychiatrist, speaker, writer, and educator. He offers an integrative, multidimensional approach to psychedelic-assisted therapy and restoring wholeness. That was my experience of conversation with him, and I'm so excited to share his wisdom with you. Will is also a doctor of philosophy, and he completed medical training at UCLA and a doctorate in immunology at the University of Oxford. He continued with psychiatric training at Harvard Medical School, where he remained on faculty for six years before moving to New York City to further study and practice psychedelic-assisted therapies. His work as a public educator has reached a wide audience through speaking, writing, and social media outlets. You may have seen him in different publications on some of my favorite podcasts like The Now Age and The Third Wave, or maybe on The Goop Lab on Netflix. Will is a co-principal investigator on a pilot research study exploring MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for fibromyalgia. He maintains a clinical office in LA for patient care, trains psychiatrists and psychologists, and is an advisor to a number of companies in the wellness space. In this episode, Will shares his journey in religion, spirituality, how he first came across and experienced psychedelics, finding marriage between science and the felt experience, Will's experience with depression and psychedelics, a more expansive way to approach psychedelic integration, stepping into your unique, authentic emanation, questioning the norm, and releasing any limiting beliefs you may have from your childhood. Towards the end, we also talk about how to choose the right psychedelic therapist if that's something you are called to do. And if you're a therapist or are planning to become one, how to get started on the path of offering psychedelic-assisted therapy. Before we jump into this conversation with Dr. Will Sue, here's a quick word from our sponsor, one of my favorite brands in the entire world. I am so excited to share that one of my favorite products of all time is now sponsoring the show. If you're looking to support your adrenal health and keep your hormones in balance, you've got to know about Rasa. Rasa is an adaptogenic coffee alternative with an incredible blend of herbs, adaptogens, and mushrooms. It gives you energy without the jitters, and it tastes really good. There are 10 Rasa flavors and functions, and each blend is formulated to support your nervous system, help you stress less, give you balanced energy through the day, and get better sleep. Adaptogens are most effective when consumed regularly and consistently, which means you can get your daily dose of adaptogens while enjoying a beautiful morning or evening ritual. I'm all about it. Here's the cool thing about Rasa. You can replace some of your coffee intake with it, or even mix it 50-50 with coffee if you wish. I recently started feeling anxious after drinking coffee, and as soon as I switched my coffee for Rasa a few days a week, my calm energy was back. My favorite Rasa flavors are spicy rose cacao, of course, which connects you to your body and sensuality, and Super Happy Sunshine, their joy blend that supports an uplifted mood. All Rasa blends are formulated in-house by clinical herbalists, and the ingredients are organic, sustainably sourced, and fair trade or direct trade. Rasa is fanatical about responsible sourcing, which is one of the reasons I recently became an investor into the company. 
there's a special offer to my listeners right now. To get started, you get 20% off your first purchase at wearerasa.com with code Xenia20. That's W-E-A-R-E-R-A-S-A.com and the code is K-S-E-N-I-A-20. You can find that link in the show notes. Well, I am so excited to connect with you. You are one of the most well-recognized voices in the psychedelic-assisted therapy world. Some people know you from the Goop Netflix show. Some people have seen you give talks or maybe even taken your courses. And I am so excited to connect with you today and share your work with my listeners. Thank you for having me and for inviting me. I've been very much looking forward to talking. So one of the things that I would love to start with is this idea that you shared on your Instagram. If anyone wants to find you and follow along, it's will.su.siu.md. You said science and Western medicine attempt to create certainty within uncertainty. These structures declared the unseen and unmeasurable to be false, and we lost faith, wonder, and synchronicity. There are few things less sexy and uninspiring than the probability of 0.05, a mean of 51, and standard deviation of 2.7. I choose curiosity, miracles, and love. Reclaim your role as the dreamer of your dream. So as an MD, to speak to science and to speak to wonder and curiosity in the same context in this way feels like this return to our natural way of knowing how to heal ourselves. Will you speak a little bit more to this approach and how it arose in you? Yeah. <laughs> It's interesting. I'm getting the chills right now. I haven't had anyone read read that one back to me, and it's been a while since I wrote that, but it, it means a lot to me. I think in many ways that quote represents my own journey into where I am today. And I think it was interesting because I was raised Jehovah's Witness up until about the age of 15 when I left the church. And for those who don't know, it's an incredibly restrictive religion. Everything under the sun will take you to hell, thinking about sex, having premarital sex, but also, you know, no holidays, no birthdays. There's no celebration um, of anything outside of God. And I bring that up because it's interesting because it's, I didn't start even questioning that until later in life. But I also felt very closely connected to what at that time I thought I, I would have called God, meaning it's interesting because I, I pulled away from that later in high school when I discovered science biology and you know, later going on to becoming a neuroscience major to getting my MD and a PhD, meaning I swung the complete other way. And, and you know, once I was 18 or so, I had a pretty strong sense that I was an atheist. And, and I would have identified the, as an atheist up until the age of about 30, 34. Um, I'm 42 now. And for me, it was this, like thinking back, it was this confusion of the, certainly I started having a lot of anger towards the church, anger towards my mom, this thing that was supposed to bring us joy and happiness, you know, this religion wasn't doing it for me. And it seemed to be creating a lot of turmoil. And, and there was so much um, contradiction that I would sense from it. 
And then, so then I discovered science. It was late high school when I decided to become a doctor. I didn't really even think that I was going to go to college. It just wasn't something that, you know, as a kid was imparted on me by my parents at all. Anyway, and then once I started getting, you know, lessons on evolution and Charles Darwin and I started just buying into this. Oh, there's evidence for something. Unlike religion, there's something I can trust. There's something that's testable. And I just went with it, you know, and a lot of it made sense. And the reason I put in like p-value and statistics, because that is what, you know, science is all about. It's about, oh, we can test and therefore something is real. And I never really questioned that until... Years and years later, at, at the age of 32, and so this was after I got my medical degree and my PhD, and I was in my first year of, I was ending my first year of psychiatry training at Harvard. And I sort of think about that as, as sort of the second biggest low point of my life because, you know, the intern year, the first year of doctor training is, is thought of generally to be the most challenging one. You know, lots of sleeping in the hospital, lots of overnight call, lots of just long, long hours. And so I had finished that year in a pretty miserable state. But then I was like, ah, now I get to do psychiatry because that first year is kind of a mixture of different things that doctors do. And I was like, ah, now I found my people. I found my career. Now I'm going to get to do what I want to do. And, and I had this one lecture, I remember, that just changed the course of my life where it was like the second lecture of that second year of training where, where one of the professors was like, okay, we're going to talk about what's called the STAR-D trial, which is the largest trial ever done in psychiatry. Um, and it's the best evidence we have for anything treating mental illness. And I was excited. I was like, wow, that, that's a pretty big sell. And then I'm like, so what have you got to tell us? And he and the STAR-D trial is on SSRIs for depression. It was, I think, in the thousands, if not tens of thousands of patients. And he was like, okay, so after this double blind crossover, placebo control, blah, 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 the, the details aren't important. He's like, we find that SSRIs, you know, people no longer meet the criteria for depression about one third of the time. And I was just like, are you fucking kidding me? Like one third, that's the best we've got. And I was feeling depressed at that time. So I want to put that in context. And I was like, and I had tried more than a couple of times, different medications to treat my own depression when my father died about, about four years before this. And they didn't work for me. I felt worse. And so, and that a brief stint of therapy back then, but um, very, very brief. And then the punchline of his talk was then he said, he's like, and the, that one third that get better, it's compared to placebo, which is 19%. And that just it, oh, it sent chills down my spine. It still sends chills down my spine right now. I'm like, so I did all of this. At that point, it was 15 years straight education after high school. I'm like, I did all of this for 10% better than placebo. It, and I just like, I, I can cry right now. It's like every single time. I just, and that sent me into this second biggest depression and period of suicidality in my life. I was just like, I wasted my time. It was almost like the evidence was so great in my personal experience and in seeing my patients that I'm like, this is not working. And I started talking to my colleagues about it, but like no one would buy into this with me. They were just like, they, they just seemed to like not want to question it. And it was a little bit after that then that I remember two empowering things or that helped me 
to start moving past this. Um, I almost dropped out. I was going to then apply for an MBA and I applied to management consulting firms. I was going to go into like to work for McKinsey, Bain and that kind of thing. But it had hit me also at that point. That was the first time I really started self-reflecting being like, I have put up hoop after hoop after hoop telling myself I was going to be happy when I achieved this. And that was in therapy really for the first time where I'm like, this is my pattern. I keep seeking happiness outside. It's not going to come from there. And that was really another, again, just just beginning of my healing journey. And so the two things I was referring to are then this quote by Jiddu Krishnamurti, who I think I had just discovered him back then, a spiritual teacher. And it was a quote by him that says, it's no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. And it was that and then a video by uh, Dr. Gabor Mate, where he starts talking about how broken our system is. And, and having him as a physician, number one, and then that Krishnamurti quote started making me realize, like, either I keep telling myself there's something wrong with me and trying to fix myself in therapy, or there's something wrong with the system, right? And I think the default for most humans, especially when we're younger, is there's something wrong with me. And, and just the conglomerate of all of those things happening at one time was just like, no, I can trust in my body this, there's something very wrong here with, with this system, with me, what, the way I viewed it. And just to add a little bit more is that at the same exact time, again, that, that's when synchronicities, that wasn't even, the word wasn't in my language, you know, as an atheist at that point, where just things started happening, where um, my childhood best friend, he did the opposite of me after high school. He barely graduated. He became a blue collar worker. He was in a band having fun. Um, but he had actually decided to go back to college while I was going through this because after the 08, 09 financial crisis, he was struggling. So he decided to go to college. And so he was in his first year of college at 32 as I was going through this like life crisis. And uh, he ended up being introduced to a psychedelic called DMT. And neither of us had, were into psychedelics before that in our lives. I mean, I'd smoked pot like five times again, but it was the history of this like Jehovah's Witness that I, and, the, and the war on drugs in the 80s. I was terrified of drugs. And over months and months, he's telling me about these experiences, smoking DMT. And like, he started sending me all these videos by like Terrence McKenna. And like, I'm like, I, I just didn't even watch them. I'm like, what's wrong? I'm like, like, don't, these are drugs, they're dangerous. But he kept insisting over our conversations and we lived across the country from each other until one day he was like, Will, he's like, psychiatrists used to do research on this in the 60s and it was showing a lot of promise. And I was like, in my just doctor, I'm like, don't tell me like what, what evidence is for. I'm like, I'm going to go look this up. And that was another just day where it changed my life because I found all of these scientific papers in really well-published journals from the 60s and 70s, one in particular by a Nobel laureate who had been studying DMT being produced in the human brain. And that one just, that was another turning point. I'm like, wait a second. Why isn't a Nobel Prize winning scientist studying DMT? And all of a sudden this came to an end, right? And that's when I started learning more about the war on drugs, Richard Nixon, the Vietnam War, and the response to the hippie movement. And yeah, ever and since then it just just expanded. And then just the last thing to add for this is that so I flew across the country during my one vacation to try DMT with my friend. We got all ready, we got prepared, and I completely chickened out. Like I was too scared, so I flew back to Boston. 
<laughs> and just tried to keep doing what I was doing. And then I just got more and more miserable to the point where I'm like, I scheduled another vacation. So it took two years for me to even try a psychedelic for the first time. I was so scared. And I finally did. But I, well, I was finally like, there's like, I'm so miserable. I'm, I'm, I want to kill myself. I may as well try this drug, even if it kills me, <laughs> like, um, instead of continuing life as it is. And then so yeah, my first, you know, psychedelic was this smoked form of what's called NNDMT. And it's interesting, like, I would say that overnight, not over minutes, you know, I went from being an atheist to, to reconnecting to that deep connection to, to something greater, like, even though it lasts just minutes, I had these few things that came up Four things. I was like, it was warm. It was waiting for me. I had been there before. And the sense of it was more real than real. There was just that phrase that came up to me, like that's more real than this, what's happening now. And that sort of just catapulted my, like I, I never just looked back um, again on psychedelics and just kept digging and digging. This is 2014, about eight years ago. So anyway, that's the, the, long, the long version of why that quote you know, means so much to me. And um, I started also learning later that I think it was, um, gosh, I can't remember who the, it wasn't Pythagoras. It was one of those scholars that introduced the idea of the XYZ plane, which, which again, it, it gives space for time and space uh, measurements. And it's since then that we became like this more and more mind-based culture, right? What was thought of as like as the, the enlightenment period of, oh, I think I can measure, I can explain, therefore it's true, right? And I think society has only been swinging in that direction as opposed to saying what I feel is true. And that's what a psychedelic journey has been a lot for me. And seeing that, I don't think humans were doing this to harm ourselves. It's just like this explanation of trying to explain what this is, what, what the human experience, well, like how do we make sense of this? What are we doing here? Why are we here? I see sort of the intellectualization as one attempt to do that. I don't think it was trying to be harmful, but it was this attempt at understanding, right? And then there was just shifts over time because of science and measurability where people were like, this must be true, as opposed to saying what I feel. So I sort of see it as it was almost a disconnection of the mind and body. Where I don't discount science, science is interesting, it has its value, but it's started to say, ah, it's only what we measure that, that we can believe in. And, um, you know, the last thing I'll say about this is that, um, you know, I often will challenge scientists, you know, cause especially doctors that, that will, will talk to me about this. And I'll often say to them, well, I was like, two things, I'll bring up, is there anyone in, that you love? And for almost everyone, that's of course a yes. And number two, I'll say, do you believe in God? And for, for many, many doctors and scientists, both the answer to both of those is yes. But then I'll ask, well, show me scientific evidence that, that you, you love someone or that you believe in God or that God is real. You know, show me a CT scan, show me an MRI, show me a study, right? And they don't exist. But right, how many choices do we make in our life for love and for God? Right, right. Endless. If anything, we can say like those probably drive a lot of what we are. And so, you know, it's this, I think ultimately, like there, there can be cross help and a marriage between the mind and the felt experience. But I just think we've thrown very off balance towards emphasizing the mind. Wow. What an incredible way to take us like on a journey and then bring us all the way back to where we started and kind of weave your story and your why in there. And 
hearing what you're saying about the system and questioning the norm and how there weren't really other people around you that were willing to question it with you. Like there's part of me that is wondering why is it so ingrained in us to just stay in your lane, not question the norm. But at the same time, in my experience and what you're saying as well, it sounds like this search for meaning, this search for something bigger than us, it requires this inner strength that can only arise from within. The system can't tell us, you know, go and find this your path, go and find your way. It's kind of this inner journey that leads us exactly where we're meant to be. But there is this moment of choosing, okay, I'm not going to live in the norm. I'm not going to live by the status quo. I'm going to seek something beyond what has brought me where I am today. On the other hand of that, also hearing you talk about how we can merge science and mysticism, I think that's exactly what's leading this resurgence of the psychedelic movement. And on the one hand, it's so exciting because it's opening up pathway for healing for so many people who wouldn't go the mystical route, who trust science, who trust the medicine, and that's why they choose it. And on the other hand, there's this concern for me from what I'm seeing of how do we keep this work sacred? And do we even need to worry about that? Or are the plants and the guides, you know, and the medicine and the healing, it just is going to unfold the way that it's meant to unfold and it's out of our control. What is your take on any of that? It's interesting. When I say the, there can be a potential for the marriage of both science and the felt experience, I actually think that the science will always lag behind the felt experience. I think of science as, as kind of like an art. It's an interesting thing to do, but I would never hang my hat on it because like, well, two things. One, there was a the editor-in-chief, I think it's the British Medical Journal. If not that, it's like another one of the top, it's like literally one of the top three medical journals right now. He's still actually currently the editor-in-chief of this. He put out a, I think in 2017, he put out a, his own article saying how even in the top five medical journals, that within five years of publication, approximately 50% of the studies are shown to be not true meaning further science proves them to not be true. So I want to bring that up because just it's, that's just fact. And as a scientist, that's what I realized is that, uh, especially during my PhD, I'm like, we're publishing all sorts of papers, but I don't actually believe in them myself, meaning I didn't end up publishing a paper on my PhD work. I published, obviously, my thesis itself, but I didn't want to put energy into making it a paper because I'm like, I don't really believe that that this is that important. And I actually think that it will end up being proven untrue. The second thing that I bring up around this science piece is that, I don't know, there's this book that I had read a little bit into. It's called The Dancing Wooly Masters by Gary Zukov, where he talks about the experience of humans, sort of say if, if Earth was kind of like a gigantic pocket watch and we were living on the surface of this watch. And we saw the hands moving, and then we could start measuring, oh, like, look, the second hand moves this fast, and the minute hand moves this fast, and oh, there's this sound, there's this click. And, and we can make all sorts of interesting stories and explanations and test what's happening under that face of that clock. But we'll never, as humans, be able to understand what's actually under there. 
And when I say that, you know, I mean science sort of most directly, meaning that's why I think we continue to disprove because, you know, again, scientists tend to say that this world, this universe is a certain way, which is a massive assumption to not to, to think that it doesn't change. The other one is, though, in complete relation to that is religion. I mean, again, even Buddhism, even Hinduism, they're beautiful stories. But whether they're true or not, we still don't know, right? But we throw it in this bucket of spirituality. So, so I think in the wellness world, or in the spiritual world, that's where I've seen more of this is like, there sort of seems to be this, again, this desire for comfort outside of us, even in the spiritual teachings. And so I've actually, you know, again, just because we get millions of people to believe science or millions of people to believe a religion, I, I think that ultimately, again, they are, we don't know. So when I really say felt experience, that's to me like, you know, a common thing around a lot, lots of spiritual teachers, whether it's Eggheart Tolle, et cetera, who are like, it's the now, it's the experience we have now that is all we have. Again, whether it's science or religion, it's interesting. Humans think we can create, we can write, but I would never hang my hat on either science or spirituality. And so you actually then, towards the end, I think maybe I've addressed this a little bit, you brought up this word spirituality, which to me more recently, I actually don't see that much value in it. I don't actually even know, especially like that word is being thrown around quite a bit. Like, oh, what are your spiritual beliefs? What's this or that? Where I've seen disconnection also within the wellness and spiritual world of, oh, these are my spiritual beliefs. It's almost like, oh, that that's that's what I believe when I go to church or that's what I feel when I'm at the sound ceremony. But when I'm back at work or I'm having conflict with my boyfriend, girlfriend, or if I, you know, with my family, then we just go back to sort of, you know, our old programming. And so to me, it's most important for me is like, yeah, just my shared humanity with other people, my human experience, how do I connect over that? And whether we call that spiritual or not is less important to me. I feel that there's lots of people out there who are very deeply connected to what the human experience is about that would actually describe themselves as atheists. You know, I mean, they're just so present and just living that to me, that's the most important. That's what's become the most important thing. Like just, just connecting to our humanness. Yeah, I totally hear what you're saying. It seems that if we give spirituality that label too much meaning and power, it feels like something that's outside of us versus the love, the kindness, the remembering that is within us and that we can choose to access in every moment. I'm so excited to share with you that my number one podcasting tool since day one of this podcast, Zencaster, is sponsoring this episode. I remember when I first started my podcast, it seemed like solving a tech puzzle. But I've been using Zencaster since day one, and honestly, it's made it so easy. It provides crystal clear sound and gorgeous HD video. What I love about it is that it records separate audio and video tracks for me and my guests. So the editing process is super customized. Plus, they offer secured cloud backups, and I've never lost a single episode. It's super easy to use. There's nothing to download, and my guests just have to click on the link, and we start recording. I recently got to try their automatic post-production, and it's so good. I'm a huge fan of Zencaster. If you're a podcaster or you're thinking about starting a podcast, Zencaster has a special deal for my listeners. Go to Zencaster.com slash pricing 
and enter promo code KSENIA, all capitals, my name, to get 30% off your first three months with Pro Account. It includes unlimited audio and video recordings, hosting up to four guests at once, audio and video mixing, and unlimited English transcriptions. You get a 14-day trial and can always downgrade to the free account if you choose to. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R dot com forward slash pricing, promo code Xenia, all caps, or click the link in the show notes to get that 30% off. It's time to share your story. So I want to rewind back to your psychedelic experience. And it sounds like you've integrated a lot of it. You shared those four things that came through. And right now with your work as a psychedelic assisted therapist, a lot of your work is integration. Back then, were you familiar with that word? Was it part of your experience? How did you integrate it so that it actually continues offering healing in your life and offering guidance? Yeah, it's a great question. Actually, I'll step back because people started talking about the word integration probably around 2017, 2018 in the psychedelic circles. And then it's certainly now become a buzzword, in, especially in social media and in companies that are being started around it. I have actually never seen or heard a definition of what psychedelic integration is that to me feels complete. And I like to emphasize that I actually don't think that psychedelic integration needs to be or should be any different than preparation, like like really thoughtful and complete preparation for a psychedelic experience. But to add further to that, I would actually say it's actually about just having a strong felt sense, but also sort of approach to our own healing process and why we have become to have suffering to begin with. Because I think if we can understand that, we see the psychedelic experience or a tool just as another experience to help integrate what we, why we've become disintegrated, if that makes sense. And so, it, you know, so I'll give you an, ex- an analogy that I share with my clients and that, that's very powerful to me as I've started thinking about how each human is like a prism, you know, and when I think about whatever, I haven't really set myself on a certain specific thing, whether like where we come from, is that called God? Is that source? Is that spirit? Is that Pachamama? I don't know. Ultimately, that is the experience. No word is going to capture that. But if I think of this analogy of a prism and then this white light coming in, that's source, right? And ultimately, here we are as a human. And then each human then has this potential emanation, right? That's the spectrum that is released on the other side of the prism that is completely unique to any human that's walking this earth right now that has ever walked this earth or that will ever walk this earth. I remember the first time I had that, it gave me the chills. I'm like, we are each so unique. And to me, what I realized is sort of the the suffering that we experience or the things that we experience that we are calling that we need healing for later are blockages of our authentic emanation, meaning because of school, because of religion, because of family upbringing, because of media, right? We're told, make your red less bright. 
make your yellow a little bit more green tinged. Or, you know, that purple, really get rid of the purple. Or because of trauma, we start to be afraid to emanate our orange. Okay, but this most of this stuff outside of adult trauma is ingrained into us by the age of 12. It's like 5 and 12 is, is where these, you know, teachings are really imparted upon us. What's wrong? What's right? What's beautiful about us? What's not? And because it happens so early, A, it's unconscious. It's the discrepancy between how we want to emanate at our most authentic and how we are currently emanating, meaning, or the difference between how we really want to be in the world as opposed to how we are being currently. It's that space in between those two things that I feel causes pain, physical pain or emotional pain. That's where the suffering comes, is when we are not embodying ourselves at our fullest. So when I think about healing, I think about how do we get back to that? And psychedelics, as you know, maybe you can now see with my approach, that's why it's one way of helping us realize that to begin with, that that's a thing. I may not be living the life I want to live. It might help us release the emotion, which I, I kind of think of as of the glue. Like if there's like gunk on the prism or there's film on it because we've tried to change the color, keeps the gunk or the film on the prism is pain. It, it's like old shame. It's old fear. It's old sadness of what would happen if we were to emanate at our authenticity, right? So psychedelics can sometimes help us re- you know, feel and release that emotion. And so that is my sort of summary in a nutshell of how I approach healing, right? And so for me, again, psychedelics are a beautiful tool for this, but I like to say psychedelics are neither sufficient nor necessary for healing, right? But, but combined with what I call the empathic witness in that experience, then they are, I think they're the most powerful tool we currently have. But, but they're not necessary, nor are they, again, nor are they sufficient because it's this, am I going to see how I'm living as opposed to how I want to live and willing to make those changes, whether it's you know, saying no to certain friend groups, whether it's breaking up with somebody, whether it's leaving a job, that is, is ultimately, again, changing our lives to how we want to live. And that, to me, is, is the, quote, healing. And so... All of my clients understand that before as I work with them, whether they're doing sessions with me with ketamine or whether they're going to, I'm helping them prepare to go to an ayahuasca or psilocybin retreat. And if you could see sort of the way way I see it though, that's why for me, psychedelic integration is this buzzword of, and and this isn't a a criticism of this current psychedelic community. I just think, you know, there's this quote who that is attributed to Ram Dass that's coming up to me right now. I don't know if it's, I've actually never googled it enough to to see if it is true but um the quote is you can only get as high as your shaman has gotten meaning like i think most healers are trying their best there's just very few i think that understand this transformation evolution healing process very very deeply and so it's this mixture right now of capitalism moving into psychedelics and healing and companies and trying to you know buzzwords and quotes on Instagram of but it's the how to actually make these shifts in your life I think which is 
we just need time to catch up, right? We need enough of the the really experienced teachers and healers to train more healers and people. So that's my not so short take on psychedelic integration. <laughs> I love how both things that I brought up spirituality and integration, you just completely disassembled the labels and like the meaning that culture prescribed it. And you brought it back to the felt experience. You brought it back to what's here right now. And how does that apply to each of our unique prisms? And, you know, from that perspective, each of our healing journeys is so unique and each of our experiences with psychedelics or without psychedelics and therapies so vastly different. And with that, I'm curious, are there any ways that you can speak to what are some of those blockages that you typically see stopping people from being their full expressions of self? And how can we start to address them in our daily lives? Let's talk about two examples, let's say, that, that are common right now in, in 2020, the 2020s. Let's talk about race and let's talk about money and material wealth, because those are two I can give you personal stories on. My parents were immigrants from Central America, from Nicaragua. And I remember, it, it was, this is within the last few years, that at some point in therapy, I learned that I and my family were poor. You're starting to notice I'm very, very specific with language. And by that, I mean that on paper, my parents made about $20,000 to $25,000 a year, and they raised a family of five on that. And, and I had no idea. Again, I learned that that was not a lot compared to other people. Not only did I learn that, though, by then, I had created sets of thoughts that were tied to that 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 meant that my parents were less than. I started learning that my dad was an unlicensed blue-collar worker. He was in construction. I had learned that my mother had only finished the seventh grade in Central America and had not finished school, and she didn't speak English that well. And all of these things, again, from this initial saying that I, I learned I was poor, ended up having an impact on me who I thought I was in the world, what limits I had on myself, what I could achieve, who I could date. Like, like there was all of these ripples that came from this initial, again, quote, learning that there was something, such a thing as, as being poor. And, and a big part of my healing journey has been coming out of that and realizing that that was simply a creation of my mind, right? And that that caused all these ripples of self-limits. And, and you know, that's one that I've, you know, thankfully for the most part moved out of, right? So just to give you another example is race. And the reason I'm bringing these up is because these two themes and many more are, are very prevalent in culture right now, right? Equity and equal pay and, and we have to redistribute wealth. And, and if you want, we can get into the details. I know they're very heated topics, but they're very nuanced. If you want some nuance on that, I can add. Um, Definitely. Whatever you feel is relevant. For race, for instance, like I remember, I can't. I think it was third or fourth grade, where again I learned I wasn't white. It was like a shock. I'm like, oh wow, there are the white kids, and then there's the not white kids. I'm part of this group, and at my particular school, the white kids. There was like a school that had sort of collected from two different areas of the city, meaning there was the rich and the the white kids were definitely had more material wealth. Than the black and Latino kids who uh, 
I, I associated with friends that shipwise were the poorer ones. And at that time, I remember also thinking, I am limited on where I can go to college. I'm limited on what I can achieve in my life. I'm limited on how, if I could ever be a department chair. Once I started realizing I wanted to go to medicine, oh, I'll never be able to be a head of the department. I'll never be able to do this because I'm not white. And again, so I'm, I, I won't re-explain what I just had with the whole thing I learned about being poor, but it was, again, learning these nuanced things that I had carried with myself. And so the healing journey in many ways has been, these are the more nuanced stories I certainly learned. You know, I've been cutting through later, later in life, but they started with sort of different ones. But those are examples of how there's, to me, there's this continual reassessment of of pain, right? And feeling my body as the signal that something is off and then going in and inquiring about what are the stories? What is it? Like, why am I in this pattern and trying to deconstruct these old stories about myself? And that, that to me is sort of what I, you know, that's the practicalness. Like I had, a, I had a patient last week that told me, or this week, actually, she was like, wow, well, she's like, I read all these quotes on Instagram, but you're actually helping me <laughs> to actually embody them and to actually see how I'm how they're relevant to me in a, in my day-to-day life. I don't get that just being just reading the quotes. So I'm very practical when it comes to my client work. Um, it's very much their conversations just like this one. So you know in both cases what you said, the fact is fact, but it's the stories that we make that give it charge and then continue creating more stories and impacting us. And I'm curious with Having those stories of growing up poor, realizing that you weren't white, you went to Harvard. You went to some of the best schools. So at what point did you release some of those limiting beliefs that perhaps were affecting your thought of even being able to have those opportunities? (laughs) I would say I started probably in 2016, 2017. And I will say I am still working at releasing these stories. I think it's an ongoing process. In terms of like, the specific ones you asked me about, it was around the same time. It was probably, you know, I tried my first psychedelic in 2014. And I think ayahuasca, my first one was 2017. So somewhere in that window is where I started feeling very little limit in my career. I use with my patients often the example of like sort of four different areas to focus on. And because I think we can be at different levels of emanation in these few, in these four human relationships, meaning our friendships, our work, our family, and romance. I feel like in some areas I'm very, you know, near my most authentic emanation. And there's other areas that I feel very more behind in or more of a late bloomer in. And so I think it's, you know, it's not really a all or none. It's more of a how, how much closer am I getting to it? And so that was definitely an area where my career started certainly feeling much less. I think that's the one I'm furthest along in, in terms of my confidence and my feeling very limitless on there, that end. Um, and yeah, but th- it's certainly still a work in progress as I, I keep releasing more of things that I wanted. You know, you mentioned the Goop show. That was actually a pretty big moment for me because I had left academic institutions at three times at that point. Like I had left Harvard thinking I was going to be there forever. And then I joined the NYU team on psychedelics in 2017. At that time, there was only like three universities, I think, in the US or two that had psychedelic teams. 
And I ended up leaving that one because there was actually a, a large amount of, of dissonance between the messaging of what these were about and seeing that there was still a lot of the problems and concerns that ail other industries. And that was very painful for me because I was kind of like, oh, now I, it was another hoop. I'm like, ah, now. And so it's been this continual thing. And then there was another university that I joined for a little bit. The, the reason I mention the Goop show is because I just started speaking the way I speak in some ways to people. In the beginning, again, there wasn't that much in the media in 2017 on psychedelics, but I started getting asked, to, hey, would you speak on this podcast? There was only one or two back then. Psychedelics Today, which a friend of mine started, and so he's like, do you want to speak on my podcast? And I'm like, sure. And then I started just getting asked to speak more. And I, I realized that it was like, like the more authentically I spoke, and I wasn't trying to be a doctor and talk about, oh, psychedelics work because of you know, MDMA releases like dopamine and oxytocin. It was just like this more talking about my experience that made the difference. And I remember like Goop had done this they used to have these in-person wellness conferences, one of you know, where we met, but there was one in New York that, that predated that where I had been in their network because I had you know, d- done a Q&A on ketamine for them a, a long time ago or about a year before. And they were like, oh, we're having a conference in New York. We want to do a talk on psychedelics. And I was like, sure, I'll go. And, but I didn't, at that point, I didn't know what Goop was. I, I had just done a Q&A and like, I hadn't looked up the company. And then I remember as I was preparing for it, I was working with this vocal coach at the time because I was doing more speaking. And I looked up like the schedule for like the day, like two days before. And like our talk on, there was a panel of me and one other person and the interviewer on psychedelics. And we were set to be the last talk of the day right before a fireside chat, which was like Gwyneth, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, it's her company group and Elle McPherson and Demi Moore and someone else. And I'm like, I got the chills. I'm like, holy shit. I'm like, people are going to pay attention. I'm like, it hit me. I like, again, I had not looked up what goop even was. And so I started getting really nervous right before this talk. Cause I'm like, oh crap. Like I haven't prepared anything. And then this vocal coach though, who I still work with sometimes she's a friend. She was like, well, she's like, she's like, just do you emanate you. She's like, when you are in front of that audience, you like imagine your crown chakra connected to the heavens, your root connected to the center of the earth, and she speaks. She like speak from that place. And I'm getting teary eyed again just thinking about this because the interviewer, who her name's Elise Lunin, who's now left Goop, but um, she's become a friend. But at that time, it was the first time I met her. I remember her first question she asked. She was like, "Oh, so can you guys explain to us how MDMA therapy works?" And my my colleague jumped in right away. I think everyone was just like nervous. And so he was like, yeah. And he gave the scientific explanation. He was like, oh, it works on this neurotransmitter. and This is released and brain imaging shows this. And he finished. And then Elise was like, okay, cool. Next question. And I actually stopped her. And I'm like, I have something to say. This is the way it works. And by then I had actually had a legal MDMA session where I got to take MDMA as part of my training. And then I went into like, no, actually what happens is we get into these old traumas. I had been experiencing loneliness. I had these experiences of going during my MDMA session to where my dad was beating me as a child and screaming into a pillow saying, nobody loves me, nobody loves me. And that has carried on into my adulthood. And like, I just felt, I was like, I cannot stay silent. Like, this is what I need to share. And like, I remember like looking around the audience, just that's how I kept answering questions. And like, people were just like, like staring at me, like, I'm, I'm like, 
some sort of freak, but I'm like, this is what needs to be said right now. It like wasn't even like me talking. I'm like, this is what I am being called to share. And like, I remember it was right after that that Elise came up and they were filming the show, the the actual episodes for the show the next month. And she came up to me and she's like, Well, she's like, I love the way you just talk. Are you free next month? Will you fall fly to LA to like film with us? And like, meaning the more I just like trusted myself like things more things just started coming and so I just remember that day like I'd not met Gwyneth before that but sitting down all the cameras are set up and just sitting in this chair and just like her and Elise walking in and just being aware of everything in my history like I remember sitting there being like wow look I'm like this first person to go to college I had all these doubts this and this and I'm like and this is happening right now I was able to almost like just feel the what I call awe of just in the wonder of this life just just in that moment. And it was one of many that just helped help me, me trust and trust and trust myself more. Wow. I was there when you gave that talk. And they say that there's stories that, well, I think of stories that soothe our brains and explain things. And we kind of create a, a compartment in our brain of like, okay, I believe this. But then there's stories that move our being and it's unexplainable. And those are the stories that move us into action. And that's what you're speaking about. When we speak from that place of allow me to be a vessel, allow me to share whatever is meant to be shared for me in every moment, that is healing, that is love, that is source, that is God. No words can describe the full spectrum of it, but all of these words are kind of different aspects of that occurrence. And wow, as you were sharing that story, I felt all of it. And there's two different sides of this unfolding that I want to get into, and I'll allow you to choose which way you want to go first. That one side of it, is by the way, I don't know if there's ghosts. I'm in an office in Austin right now, and the light keeps going on and off. So I don't know if it's like spirits playing with us or whatever that is. Anyway, so the one side of it is for anyone who's interested in psychedelic therapy and working with psychedelics and healing with them, what is the way to start or perhaps speak about your practice? And the second part of it is the public figure entrepreneur aspect of what you do because you've had some very public appearances on TV and publications on podcasts and there's a lot of people who listen to this podcast who are coaches who are healers and I think it would be interesting to speak to what led you to being one of the most recognized voices in these, these fields, whether that's something that was in some way strategic or like totally surrendered intuitive, or maybe a combination of both. So I'll let you take it from here. The how to start with psychedelics and then how you built your name in this field. In terms of becoming just a healer, it's interesting. There's always a, a time that comes up when, when this is before psychedelics came into my life. Um, it was my first my dearest psychotherapy supervisor and, and psychotherapy is, is sort of still taught in an apprentice model. Meaning like when you start training as a psychotherapist, like you have like one-on-one -on -one time with a very se senior um, therapist and you just sort of talk about your cases. At that time, I actually started recording my cases too. So it's essentially like old school apprenticeship, like, you know, becoming a, a sword maker or something, which can be very painful. Cause again, especially like showing someone my videos, like few of my, classmates if any of them did that but for me it was like I wanted to learn and you know because if I wrote down what happened and then I told my supervisor later I knew like it wasn't going to be at its most accurate so it was very 
scary for me to do that, but I learned so much. But anyway, I bring him up because I had asked him at that time and he was just like, yeah, anyway, very, very, one of the most senior psychoanalysts in the Boston area at that time. But uh, I was super excited. I was just so pumped to learn about psychotherapy where I was like, his name was Len Glass. And I was like, you know, I was like, what books should I read? What training should I do? Like, what workshops should I attend? And he took his time answering. And he's he even at the time, I think he was in his early 80s and beautiful blue eyes. And he's like, Will, he's like, you're going to learn there to be a therapist by doing two things. He's like, doing your own therapy and seeing more patients. The only thing I would add to that is having supervision, which he, he didn't tell me, but he was embodying it. And so I actually think myself and talking to senior people in the psychedelic community, like Rick Doblin, a good friend of mine, but also Marcella Otolora, who's one of the lead MAPS therapists, and they all agree, like, this is just going to take time. Like, you cannot take a week-long course, a just a year-long didactic course. Like, this has to be experiential. It's not that the didactics hurt, but, but sometimes, again, thinking we know something in the mind can trick us into, I know how to incorporate this into my practice and the practice of others. And so I think especially for healers right now, it's just looking at our limits on what we can do and what we can't do. You know, I think there are some healers out there doing group psychedelic therapy or one-on-one -on -one psychedelic therapy, some that have no business doing it, that, that meaning some people are being hurt by what they do. There are some who have solid amount of skill, but I think they're using doses that they are not prepared to use or they're, they're not able to like screen and understand clients well enough to know which medicines to use, which not, and they can be left in a, a worse off state. So I would say as a healer, it's, it's this continuous self-inquiry of what is it that I feel very comfortable with and what am I not? And, right, and that generally tends to be with what we have gone through ourselves. And I actually know very few therapists in general, let alone psychedelic therapists, that still have their supervisor and see this as an apprenticeship. Some people take the training and just start doing it and keep going. That's the vast majority. Some of it, I think, is, is lack of interest or lack of knowledge. But the other thing is that there aren't that many really good supervisors out there. Right? I teach a couple of people. It's part of my practice. But you know, there aren't the teachers out there. So it's almost like this seeing this as not this mad rush of something you have to do right now and figure out, but being like, this is something I will be moving into over the next 5, 10, 20 years, right? So Rick Doblin, who, who started MAPS, which is the major nonprofit that led this work, he has said recently in an interview, something he said to me privately, where he's like, I think that by 2050, society will have learned how to have incorporated psychedelics, right? So this is like the guy who literally had this vision since 1986 saying, it's going to take at least another 30 years. Again, so there's this like rush culture of just, you know, this has just been happening. This is not specific to psychedelics. But now there's this like, energy around we have to do this right now. And, and we just can't, it's going to take time. So that's what I would say to, you know, practitioners. And I would say also in terms of people looking for their own healing is to explore things um, that feel safe. They want to explore psychedelics, start low. You don't have to go to these like intense four days of ayahuasca in one week somewhere, unless that feels comfortable. I mean, that could be a fine way to start if you want to, but, but don't push yourself into anything that doesn't feel 
safe or comfortable or if you meet with someone because right now it's hard, like there's very you know there's such a demand for underground psychedelic therapy that some people they often will work with the first person they find because there's really a high demand right now even though it doesn't feel good you know but if it, if, if your body's telling you this is not the right situation listen you know like just wait and um you know, the reason why I really like to emphasize my approach that I had shared earlier when we were talking about integration with people is because th- when people really start to understand that, they see that it's not the psychedelic and that they don't need it and that they can start working on this right away, right? Like, and, and it does not require psychedelics or other things. You know what I mean? I, I sort of sometimes get scared when I think about, you know, certainly it wasn't as widespread, but when yoga st- first started coming to the Western world, Right, whether that was by Yogi Bhajan or other people, where it was like, "Oh my God, look, there's this thing that's going to help us connect to spirituality and, and our enlightenment." And look what it's become. It's become like Lululemon and who's wearing what and my ten class pass for ninety nine dollars. Like it's it, you know, it like got perturbed. I think much from what it originally was was thought it was going to be. And so that's one thing that I you know I think it's already happening with psychedelics. Um, you know, I used to get much more worked up about it emotionally, but I'm finding gentleness around it because I do think that, yeah, it's going to take time and I'll just sort of, yeah, the opportunities that I feel called to do or to respond to, I'll I'll keep contributing my end and hopefully it's towards using these more within alignment. I don't know if I answered your last question. You were sort of saying then, you know, there was certainly a time where I felt the desire to speak, meaning like I, had, I think I had be, part of my emanation is sharing. And so in the beginning, I was like, I was really desiring to speak. And then there was a time, especially in the last few years, sort of post Michael Pollan's book, where I started getting into the whole falling into the rat race, also feeling like I'm not doing enough. I'm falling behind. Oh my God, look what this person's doing. Look what that person. And there was certainly a time where I was out there seeking and, and trying to do more. And I've certainly found this is especially personal work over the last six to eight months, a, a more of a comfort around that um, where I, I really, I have a, a medium that I work with who really talks about this echoing of ourselves. Like, like that when, as we echo more and emanate more authentically, sort of the universe echoes back people and opportunities start coming to us, right? It's a form of explaining synchronicity. And, and I've, I've learned and I'm learning to trust that more and more. Not that this like drive is out there, but it's like the right opportunities will come to me. So yeah, I love to speak. I, I love, enjoy talking and having conversations like this. Writing is certainly a, a, a big thing that I know is something that is part of my emanation, but is still blocked for many reasons within myself, but I do see myself you know, writing books on these approaches. Um, hopefully some more stuff in audio format uh, sort of stuff. So I definitely plan to just keep at this, but it's not really, to me, psychedelics focused, right? It's psychedelics are always a tool, but it's this, how do I help people do their healing work within and seeing that that power lies within them? That, that is very much my, something that's very core for me to, 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 to teach and to speak about. It's this idea, very much what you're talking about, I've been sitting with is in order to call in what anything that we want to call in, we have to hold this space that actually will welcome it. And when we're w- walking in the world in our authentic frequency and our full expression as much as possible in the moment with all the healing that's always ongoing, the more we will be provided exactly what we're looking for. And 
thank you for being the embodiment of that. And thank you for the beautiful multidimensionality and integrity with which you approach this work. And I also really appreciate how much we've just touched like so many different facets of this work within psychedelics and outside of psychedelics and spirituality. And before we wrap up, is there anything, well, that I didn't ask you about that you feel called to share? The only thing that comes to mind for me is this emphasis that I think, I mean, I've said in different ways, but just to reemphasize it, that really that we are the only ones that know how we each should be living our individual lives. And there's there's different mechanisms and ways of, of how to gauge that, that we don't have time to go in. But I would say that, that, that it's really important to trust yourself throughout your entire journey, you know, because there's, there's many times where I didn't do that. And I think there's different reasons for that, you know, seeking the guru outside of myself, wanting to, to find the truth, the fear around that not being, you know, there, that there wasn't someone who has figured this out or a religion outside of myself. And it's a, yeah, it's an ongoing process, but I, I would say that, yeah, what I would want to emphasize is that, that again, that, that, the deepest knowledge of what we need and how we're meant to be living is, is only within each of us. So use books, use psychedelics, use podcasts as things that may help you along your way. But um, yeah, I think just for me, just, yeah, always, always keep in mind that only we know yeah, what's really, really yeah, best for us. I love that. Such a beautiful invitation to leave us with thank you again for this beautiful conversation thank you everyone for tuning in and have a blessed rest of your day and trust the knowing that's within you (laughs) yeah thanks again for having me this podcast was made on zencaster if you're moved by what was shared in this episode and not sure how to take action start by writing it down When we notice abundance and clarity in all shapes and forms and honor it, it grows. And if you're called to share the podcast with someone who you know is ready to receive it, follow that. Find all episodes, show notes, and current offerings on XeniaBrief.com. Subscribe to Xenia Brief Podcast on Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and a review, and take one deep breath into the knowing that's already within you.